welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And he said to Elijah, she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be gathered in these spaces, both physically and virtually, that we would hear from you. Father, thank you that your word is truth, and we would seek to be molded by this ancient yet true word speaking into all of the myriad contexts of today. Father, thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to unite us to Jesus crucified and resurrected and also to understand your scriptures. And so would that occur now? Would your voice be heard? Would your being be worshipped? Would we hear the welcome of the kind Lord Jesus given for us and for our salvation? Do a good work now, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, work with me on this one. It's great to play with your own toys, but even better is playing with someone else's toys. That is right. So your toys may be okay, I hope they are, but playing with other people's toys, that is so much better. And so I'm a child of the late 20th century suburbs, and so playdates for me usually meant that I had to be driven different places. It usually meant that I had to get my mom most of the time involved. So the whole thing, and some of you that are around my age will recognize the old drill. You call up your friend, hey, can my mom talk to your mom? 
and then moms get on the phone and say, hey, let, let's arrange a play date. And at least for me, because I recognize that it makes all the sense in the world for me to want to play with other people's toys more than mine, I would be whispering to my mom, even though I was the one that called the other people, I want to play over there, mom. Over there. Tell them I'm coming over there. And so it was this constant cold and sometimes hot war between me and my mom who would say, quite rationally in retrospect, Jim, you recognize that this is a tough ask for you to call a friend and then for me to invite you over to that friend's house. And I was like, just do it, mom. I want you to do this for me. And so sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But there was this one particular friend of mine that was with me throughout elementary school, but then moved away at the end of elementary school. This was suburban New Orleans. His family was from Kentucky, so he went, moved back to Kentucky. And I don't know what you call it when you have a lot of horses, like a horse compound or something. He had a horse compound, so he left New Orleans. And Brian had a ton of toys, and they were really, really great. So I might say that he had a lot of G.I. Joe figures and G.I. Joe stuff, for example. That would be underselling the amount of toys that Brian had. He had all of them. So year after year, Hasbro in the 80s would they say this line, this series, and then about a year later, they'd come out with more. Brian just had all of them. And if some of you have seen the new newish Voltron show on Netflix. It's a cartoon thing. First cartoon in Japan and toy, and then came to the US. I had the clunky plastic Voltron that wasn't that good, but my friend Brian had the die-cast Voltron. I didn't even know what die-cast meant, but I was alia yakta est. I am in. This is awesome. So always wanted to go play at my friend Brian's house. I was really sad when he moved away. I miss Brian, and I miss his toys. First time I was at Brian's place, hey, what do you want to do? And it's like, I don't know. And if you can think back, or maybe you've been in this boat where you're at you know, friend's house for the first time, you're trying to feel out the lay of the land. Do you want to go play in my room? I was like, yes. And that's where I saw all the G.I. Joe. That's where I saw the Voltron. It was the best room I had ever been in. We played outside for a lot, and they had a huge yard, tons of sports equipment, jungle gyms, all that. It was great. And then the second time I was over, and I'm sure there must have been a time at my house in between, I probably asked him to come to my house like the next day after the first visit so I could get back to Brian's house as soon as possible. Got to Brian's place, Jim, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, let's just go play something. And he said, you want to go upstairs? And I said, yeah, that's great. Loved your room last time. And he said, no, I mean the other upstairs. And I was like, tell me more about this other upstairs. So it turns out that for part of Brian's house, there is a wing that was a three or four car garage. And he said, let's just go to the game room, which turned out to be the first story of the four car garage was the garage. The entire open plan second story was his game room that had even more toys, all the Transformers. Hasbro was covered, Mattel was covered. He had all of that and then game stuff like foosball and air hockey tables. He even had, and this was a high ceiling place, he even had a papa shot, right? Do you remember those? If you go to our, it's you pump, pump in a quarter, Brian didn't have to. Little basketballs come out, so I, I could miss shooting, I could miss shots in air conditioning when I was playing papa shot with Brian. It was awesome. And it just blew me away that there was even more 
in this game room, in this upper room, this space that had so much abundance. And every time I was over at Brian's place for the rest of my period with him in elementary school, even though I wasn't always with Brian in that upper room, it made all the difference in the world to me when I was there that I knew that was there too. And it was a place of abundance and endless toys. And so, I mentioned my friend Brian, and I will say, 10 or 15 years ago, when I would mention old friends, I'd give their first and last name. In the days of Facebook stalking, I've stopped doing that. I learned that the hard way, that you don't want to mention random people from elementary school, and then... Anyway, I'm not going to go into that. It's a bad story. Point being, in 1 Kings, we've been in this sermon series right here. And we have two sermons so far. It's been myself that preached the first one, Eric preached a great sermon last week, continuing on in 1 Kings 17, and Elijah, the prophet, the man of God, has come outside of Israel into a land called Sidon in Zarephath, where there is a widow and her son, and the son dies. The son dies in the story, and it seems like it's the end, but there is an upper room. There is this additional space disconnected somehow from the rest of the house just on the bottom floor, and Elijah brings the son into this upper room. And when the dead son comes in contact with the living Lord, that son is resurrected. And the presence and power of God is brought back down through Elijah and the newly living son that permeates all of the story and all of the house. Death is not the end after all. And there is an abundance of life and grace because God has come to us. There is even more. There is this other place of life. In previous generations, at least in my experience, sometimes people would use a specific euphemism when talking about God, and God would be referred to as the man upstairs. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It was usually earlier on in my ministry when I was talking with older people when they'd be referring to God. I don't know if they thought it was cool or what. It was fine. Like, yeah, don't get me wrong, every once in a while I pray to the man upstairs. That, that sort of thing. And at least in my experience, again, when people would use that phrase, I guess it's not used that much anymore. When people would say the man upstairs, that would be a euphemism for God, connoting or indicating distance. Distance between us and the divine. But what if, in fact, it's the opposite? where the being, the God upstairs, is not distant from us, but instead very present. That's what the gospel story is all about, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has crossed over, that Jesus has come into our world, and that the light and life of God in his kingdom has dawned upon all of this dark and messy world because there is this upper room. There is this space in the power and presence of God that floods our world, that brings to us surprising blessing 
and surprising challenge because there is more. So two parts for the rest of this morning from 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's talk about how there is an upper room, and then let's also talk about how we can spend more time there. So there is an upper room, thinking about heaven and God's presence and God's power, and how we can more, spend more time with God, God's presence, and God's power. So like I said a moment ago, we are continuing on here through 1 Kings chapter 17, the first chapter in the Hebrew scriptures here where we meet the prophet Elijah. And this is another miracle story similar to what Eric actually preached from last week, miracle story number two, but there's an intensification if you follow along in the chapter. So last time, there was a famine, there was a drought, and there was just not a lot of food, not a lot to drink. And so this widow and her son were in really bad shape. But through Elijah, God works miraculously. Oil and flour, jar and jug, there is provision. And the buildup of the chapter is a little bit as if, what could be worse? What could be worse than famine and drought, which God met, Eric said, with surprising abundance? What could be worse than that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 17, the beginning of our sermon text for this morning. After this, so maybe a while passes here, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. The son dies. And so seemingly it is the end. But scholars who have studied this passage and this chapter of First Kings have remarked that throughout this chapter, there is a series of borders being crossed. There is a series of crossings over that occur. For example, it's Elijah that crosses over from Israel into Sidon. The climate was such that there was rain and fruitfulness crossed over now into drought and famine. And then the son, the widow's son, has crossed over from life to death. However, there is one more crossing in this chapter where Elijah takes the son and crosses over from the main part of the house into the upper room, verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And that's where we find the power and presence of God. Where death is not the end, but in fact resurrection instead. Verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Power and presence of God in this upper room, a crossing over to get up there, and then also a crossing over back down, where the power and the presence and the life and abundance of God crosses back down into our space, into our house, into our reality, because there is more. This is not all that there is. This is not all that there is. And in 1 Kings 17, there's been a series of contrasts or conflicts or oppositions that play out here as well. So, so far we've seen, and they don't directly appear in this chapter, but Elijah versus King Ahab, king of Israel, which is a proxy or a representation of it's Elijah's God versus Ahab's God. 
But then we have here in this story that it's Yahweh, the living Lord, against everyone and against everything in this sense. Yahweh is not Ahab. Yahweh is not Baal. But then also Yahweh is not Elijah because it is only the one true God that gives life and life in abundance. And secular friends and neighbors, thank you so much, whether in this room or online, if you wrestle with the things of God and you're not sure where you are with all of these pieces, you might wonder to yourself, is this really true? Doesn't it just make a lot of sense where we're situated right now that what we can see is all that there is? Whatever we can see when we peer through a telescope or squint through a microscope, this is the reality that is ours, and it's only the bottom floor. Christian philosophers have called this the imminent frame, where over the centuries here in the West, our technology has gotten so good, and we know so much, which is great, that we think all that we need is right here in front of us, and who knows about anything outside of what we can scientifically observe. There might not be anything there. And then when we have that mindset, any idea that we have about God becomes more and more and more distant where the man upstairs, so to speak, goes up another floor and another floor and another floor. And this divine being, whoever that divine being is, is vague and cloudy, impersonal, non-decisive, and places no claim upon our lives. But at the beginning of the sermon series, I said that like Elijah, wandering off in the wilderness, Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you saw that first sermon, off in the desert, who is this strange figure? So it is with the church, the gadfly wandering off on the periphery of mainstream thought, which is totally fine, loving everybody, serving everybody, but then also asking the question, is this really all that there is? Might there be more? And if a secular mind says, yeah, this is all there is, we can't say anything truthfully about anything beyond, it's just us, there are no larger forces, the church has confessed there is a God above, there is a heaven above and a hell below, and these are not empty sets. But then it also says, the church, isn't it interesting that we, one of the ways to read the story of the West is we're constantly trying to build back in larger forces because we know that we are not the end-all be-all. So traditionally on the right, the invisible hand of the markets, this force that directs the fates and the destinies of men and women, or more recently coming from us on the left. And we've wrestled with these sorts of terms in our Lenten sermon series, white privilege, a larger force that is claimed as controlling many things. And the church is able to say, let's step up and step up and step up and step up and say that the real force is not this impersonal thing coming to us from any direction, but the very personal God. And I would want to say as well that in our own little bubble in the West, it might, on the surface, make a lot of sense. Yeah, there can't be a God, or if there is, very vague, doesn't really do anything. This idea that we are all that there is, I would simply say that sort of thinking is more enculturated, less rational, and more desirable than we might think at first, more enculturated. About a year ago, I read an article 
that was noting that here in the United States, something is on the rise. This was just before pandemic. I think that it probably hasn't slowed down between now and then. One of the things on the rise here in the secular West, including America, is calls being given to the local Catholic priest for exorcisms. Exorcisms are on the rise. Here's a fun fact about me. I grew up in New Orleans. I was a classmate of the daughter of the writer of The Exorcist, the, the, the one that, that, that wrote that old movie. And it, you might not know anything about exorcism, primarily in the Catholic Church, but around the church throughout the ages as well. When people think I'm demon-possessed and I need to get this special kind of priest who has a special sort of ritual to get this demon out of me. Here in the secular West, here in the U.S., People that might not even say I'm a Catholic, that might not even say I believe in God at all, are calling priests and saying there is something more than I can rationally explain going on right now. So the Catholic Church, which is shrinking in some ways, is building up the exorcism office because there's a lot more of those sorts of things going on. And then our secular professors are wrestling with this. This shouldn't be happening. In fact, a professor at Columbia University in New York observed it this way. There are societies where the supernatural is a daily occurrence. It's really only modern Western societies that draw a sharp line between experiences attributed to the spiritual or the supernatural and the material daily world. And is it really the case where it makes all the sense in the world to say it is completely rational to claim that because I see this over here, therefore there is nothing over here? In the mid-20th century, one of the great Christian thinkers in the West, C.S. Lewis, and this might be the one C.S. Lewis book, nonfiction, that I'd recommend. It's called Miracles, where C.S. Lewis is arguing for the reality of the supernatural. And he says, is it really rational to say nothing beyond natural causes exists? He puts it this way. The naturalist makes a sweeping negative assertion, namely, there is nothing except this. An assertion surely as remote from practice experience and any conceivable verification as has ever been made. If we decide that nature is the only thing that there is, is not the only thing that there is, then we cannot say in advance whether she is safe from the supernatural or not. There are things outside her. So if we understand ahead of time there could be more, we can look at telescopes and microscopes and say, there's nothing here that necessarily proves that this is it. There can be more. And let's not discount how our hearts are involved in these things. One more quote from C.S. Lewis here talking about, these are not just abstract, logical things. Whether theist or not, we are invested in these answers. The difference between the two views, naturalism and supernaturalism, might be expressed by saying that naturalism gives us a democratic, supernaturalism a monarchical, kingly picture of reality. The naturalist thinks that the privilege of being on its own resides in the total mass of things, just as in a democracy, sovereignty resides in the whole mass of people. The supernaturalist thinks that this privilege belongs to some things or probably one thing and not to others. Just as in a real monarchy, the king has sovereignty and the people have not. If there is a God, we're beholden to this God. And that's not necessarily the most comforting thought that one might have. Even in this story in verse 20, Elijah recognizes that God is sovereign over all things. That can be uncomfortable for us when I, in my rebellion against God, can sometimes think, I would rather be my own king. 
let's get rid of supernaturalism. But instead, because God created us this way, the Bible says it is good for us to bend our knee, to give our hearts, to give ourselves to the one who created us and the one who is truly worthy of us. There is an upper room. And if all of that part seemed a little abstract and practical, let me ask the question at ground level, whether you come here this morning as a follower of Jesus or not sure or exploring, how are you living and are you living as if there is only a bottom floor? Even if you're here or watching online as somebody that's a committed Christian on a daily basis, are you living as if this is all there is? And there is not this additional space where the power and presence of God is active in our world. Here are some tells. If your life is full of dreariness, of hopelessness, and of lawlessness and or, maybe you're living as if there is not a God above. Is your life really dreary right now? And look, I get it. Life is really dreary. I am thrilled to be speaking not only to friends online, but in the room. I still can't tell if you like my jokes or not. I'll have masks on. It's the reality. The, the reopening is occurring very slowly. Life still seems really dreary and bleak. I get it. Dreariness or hopelessness, the older cousin. When, when we might think one way or another, whether we're looking at headlines or otherwise, we're all going to die. This is all that there is. Things are not going to get better. Why am I trying to fool myself into thinking maybe they will? Or lawlessness. The muddled ethic of our age may be summarized in this way. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt other people. There's a lot to unpack in something like that. I think it's not as simple as it seems. But what's so bad? There's accountability built into our lives in so many different ways. What's so bad about being accountable to God as well? But if you have the idea, I can do whatever I want, no one's watching, no one sees, I'll just try not to hurt anybody, lawlessly, Maybe you're living as if there is not a God above. But the reality is that we are living in a world like Brian's house, where it's not just his room, although that's awesome. It's not just the outside, although that's awesome. But there is the game room. There is this upper room where there is so much more, and it's endless. Let's try to spend more time there. So let me make three suggestions to you as we try to live into the reality of living within the power and presence of God in our lives as Elijah takes the living son back down from the upper room into our world. Let's try to press in to living with more hopefulness, to living with more watchfulness, and to living with more carefulness. Living with more hopefulness. There is a dead son. Let's not get too fine about this. There is a dead son in this story that's alive again because God raised him from the dead. There is a son who had died, a beloved son, that rose again because of the power and goodness of God. I'll read the story to you once more. And he cried to the Lord, this is in the upper room, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. 
And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother, and said, See, your son lives. And Elijah is this mediator figure. And so evocatively, he stretches himself on top of this corpse of a son and cries out to God. And in some mysterious way, there is a transfer, there is an exchange, there is a substitution of Elijah's life for this son, as it is in the center of the story with Jesus. We're on the cross. Jesus exchanges. Jesus transfers. Jesus allows himself to be a substitute for us, paying the penalty for our sin, tasting the sting of death for himself for three days and three nights, rising again, conquering all of it, saying, here is my life for you. And it's going to be endless. And that is grace undeserved. Jesus references this story at the beginning of his ministry when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim peace to those that are oppressed, sight to the blind, etc. He also says, and I'm coming for those of you not to think, Jesus, I'm ready. We are so awesome. Come top me off a little bit. Instead, it's for the outsiders. Not the moral, but the immoral. Not the found, but the lost. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 4. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them in Israel, but he crossed over to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Grace is surprising and undeserved. And the story continues of Jesus. We say in the creeds, as we will in a moment here, he was crucified, died, and buried, descended into hell on the third day, rose again from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We we pick up the story at the beginning of Acts. And there is another upper room where the disciples are waiting. They might not know for what, but there is an upper room. And that's when Pentecost happens when the Spirit of God comes down again, when the Spirit of God the Father brings the Spirit of the living Son to us and to the church, where God's Spirit and presence and power floods so that we are able to be united by faith to that resurrection life. Eric mentioned a liturgy last week, week week-to-week basis. What are you doing on a daily basis? Here's another one. Let me suggest it to you. We might be apt to think in our lives... Because of this, my life is bad. We don't think about it in those terms all the time, but often we might say in our heart of hearts, because of X, life is bad. Things are not okay. I am not okay. Because of this, life is bad. But summarize it in those terms and then add a second part to that liturgy. Because of this, my life is bad, but because Jesus is resurrected, things will be okay. Because of this, my life feels bad. Couple that with, but because Jesus is resurrected, my life will be okay. Our world will be okay. Try to press into that hope. And then also watchfulness. In humility but in boldness, do you actually expect God to show up in your mess, in our mess, in the world's mess? 
pray and plead with God for that. God, will will you show up here? Elijah pleads with God multiple times in this story. Would this son live? Pray for something more than once, why don't you? Make it persistent. Every once in a while, I'll hear hear somebody say, and this was told to me at the beginning of Liberty Collingswood, I had been praying for years that there would be a new church planted here. Maybe you've heard somebody say, I've been praying years for this. It hasn't happened until now. But the flip side of that is that people like that have been praying for years and nothing has happened, right? But we can keep doing it. And we can keep asking watchfully. And then finally, this is where we'll wrap up. Carefully as well. The conclusion of the story, and I don't have time to go into it, there's a return to a motif, the word of the Lord. Go back into first, first Kings 17. God's word is a motif throughout the chapter. This is what the widow exclaims. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let God, speaking through the scriptures, give you both his yeses and his no's that you're able carefully to live out by the power of God's Holy Spirit so that you can come more and more into contact with the yes of God's upper room. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.